I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I bought it all and I dropped off But I'm, I'm still seeking time Buongiorno, and welcome to another multicultural episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we look back a couple of decades and leaf, sometimes mournful, sometimes with radiant and affirming joy, through the pages of the young adult fiction that touched our lives as teens. On alternate episodes, we cautiously eye books in the same age bracket that are a bit more modern. My name is Laurie, and I'm joined by the guy that'll have a hernia if he doesn't mention a turnia. Keith Rowe. Howdy. The delightfully sprightly Brie. Come to Kiami. And not at all by the absentee loon, Patrick Moon, who sends his apologies. What does come to Kiami mean? <laughs> I don't know. My dad always says dobra, 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 den, that's like Eastern. No, no, he says dobra, 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 dobra vecere. Mm. Though I suspect that might be the Slovenian half rather than the Italian. <laughs> it's hard to tell when you're an ignorant Aussie. <laughs> this episode, we're back in high school with a popular Australian high school text about a young lass on the cusp of adulthood in a decidedly 90s Sydney setting. It is, of course, Looking for Alabrandi by Melina Macetta. But first, a warning. We're going to spoil this book harder than an only child. This book has been read by a lot of high school students over the years, but if it somehow slipped by you, particularly if you're an Australian or looking to be one, then I think this is an excellent snapshot of a place and point in time of Australia's cultural and multicultural development, what's and all. I recommend you pause and give it a quick read and come back to us. Now, spoiler warning dispensed, As this book is written from the perspective of a strong-willed teenage girl, it is only appropriate that page one be read by... Keith. (laughs) Oh, poor Keith. One. Panic was my first reaction to the multiple choice options that lay on the desk in front of me. I glanced at the students around me before turning back to question three. I hated multiple choice, yet I didn't want to get question three wrong. I didn't want to get any of them wrong the outcome would be too devastating for my sense of being. So I began with elimination. D was completely out of the question, as was A, so that left B and C. I pondered both for quite a while, and just as I was about to make my final decision, I heard my name being called. Josephine? Huh? I think you mean, I beg your pardon, don't you, dear? I beg your pardon, sister. What are you doing? You're reading, aren't you, young lady? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Excellent, Josephine. I can see you walking away with the English prize this year. Now stand up. So, my final school year began. I had promised myself that I would be a saint for this year alone. I would make the greatest impression on my teachers and become the model student. I knew it would all fail, but just not on the first day. Sister Gregory walked toward me, and when she was so close that I could see her moustache, she held out her hand. Show me what you're reading. 
I handed it to her and watched her mouth purse itself together and her nostrils flare in triumph because she knew she was going to get me. She skimmed it and then handed it back to me. I could feel my heart beating fast. Read from where you were up to. I picked up the magazine and cleared my throat. <coughs> what kind of friend are you? I read from Hot Pants magazine. <laughs> she looked at me pointedly. There it is, page one. <laughs> Bellissimo. <laughs> Thank you. No worries. Uh, Stop it. <laughs> You're so wrong. <laughs> Where's the body and the discarded murder weapon? Where's the young peasant boy who's being visited by a strangely magical uncle after his parents have been horribly murdered by Groove? You're just doing this to get my goat. No. Where's the cruel weasel warlord leading his army towards the Badger Fortress Salamanderstrom? <laughs> oh, thankfully dead in a ground somewhere. <laughs> Where's the amateur pilot about to become embroiled in a war that stretches across the galaxy? That's not a book. <laughs> I've got written here, waits for Breeze groans to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. The setting's pretty familiar for me, as it can be, I guess, for a man that was once a boy student at a public school. Comic timing was pretty good. No real hook yet. Mm, but I'm not turned away either. I think it's pretty funny. The good old switcheroo at the beginning. What about you, Bree? Oh, I think it's fantastic. You can totally put yourself in her shoes. You see exactly where she's like... You can see the classroom. You can see the sister Gregory coming at her. You can even see the wispy hair on her upper lip. I think it's fantastic. Can't wait to find out more about Josephine. I think I'm a little between the two of you guys there. So I enjoyed it a little bit, but not as much as I hoped I would. But I was still keen to read on. Hmm. Well, that's the anti-pasty. Let's move past a preemie <laughs> and into the real meat, how, the secondi. How many of these are you going to have? Oh. Please keep it up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> With a synopsis, Spree. Well, the novel pretty much has it all. Teen angst, hints of racism, coming-of-age dramas, first boyfriends, the stress of the final year of school, suicide, friendship, illegitimacy and a lost, long-lost father and grandfather, secrets, spaghetti sauce-making and a nose broken by a science book. What could go wrong? The story is that of 17-year-old Josephine Alabrandi. She's feisty and fiery. Obnoxious, but smart. She lives with her mother, Christina, in Sydney and faces the perceived challenges of being a third-generation Australian-Italian scholarship student at a prestigious girls' secondary college. We see her come of age through her relationships with her mother and her grandmother, both of whom have their own secret crosses to bear. We also see her take those first steps toward getting to know the father who she feels abandoned her and her mother at birth after an initial anger and resentment towards him. On top of all this, she has to juggle her part-time job, schoolwork, and her admiration of John Barton, the seemingly perfect, elite, intelligent debate captain, descended from the political Barton family, and balancing that against her attraction to the, uh, from the wrong side of the tracks but admirable nonetheless, Jacob Coote, the guy who used to throw eggs at her and all her all-girl school friends. Do you guys have anything to add to the synopsis? Or do you think we'll kind no. of cover it as we go along? Yeah, I think probably we'll cover it and spoil the heck out of it as Laurie's already forewarned. <laughs> Expect so as well. Love that his name is Coot. <laughs> what a coot. Cooties. <laughs> if it was an American book, no doubt that would have been played up even more. Yeah. 
Hmm. Why'd you pick it, Brie? Oh, well, I think it's going to be fairly obvious, right? This book was a huge hit in my teenage years, not just for me, but my entire friendship group. We, in particular, all empathise with Josephine having to wear the school blazer with the skirt that just scrapes your knee, and we all toyed with how we could get that hem length hoisted up a little without getting into too much trouble. We all had to wear our hair tied up off the collar, and we worked part-time jobs in crappy restaurants. We giggled over the boys from the boys' school nearby, and we watched the ever-so-cool public school kids throw food at each other across the food court. Oh, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> Uncouth. Oranges and apples. Pip them at the wall behind the people sitting across from you and they spray off in a like a grenade-like fruit salad. Were you throwing them at the private school girls like us sitting prim and proper at the the court the food court tables? No, I was a book reading nerd and I was avoiding <laughs> showers of apple. <laughs> Taking notes though on where the best spot to hit was. Yes. Anyway, we all had those sort of parental intricacies that come through this book and they all they all restricted us in a diff- in a variety of different ways. So we studied the book at school because it's in so many ways we were all represented in some small way by Josephine Alibrandi and I thought that given the surfeit of fantasy coming-of-age books you guys have read and forced me to read, you ought to see how this one stacks up. Fair enough. So with that in mind, Keith, what did you think? Well, I have to say I've read this before as well in high school. It was one of the books we studied. I don't remember what year it was, but it was quite a few years ago. I also will say that as the most ethnically diverse member of the Seeking Tumnus crew, I feel some degree of responsibility to understand some of the issues facing young Josephine Alibrandi. What are you talking about? I'm English, Irish, Scottish and English. <laughs> oh, could you be any more Caucasian? <laughs> more Anglo? I, I will just point out for the record that I am the only one that is part Italian here. Well. I had a nonna and a nonna being one quarter Italian and one quarter Slovenian. I said the most ethnically diverse, perhaps not the most accurately ethnically diverse, but <laughs> <laughs> I could go through my international pedigree, but... Go on. Okay, sure. So it's only a slight margin that I take Laurie by. My mother was born in Budapest. I'll give a more dramatic telling of that. So about 60 years ago, in fact, my grandparents gave birth to their third child. It was their first girl. Louisa. Within a week of her birth, Soviet tanks entered the Hungarian city of Budapest and thousands of lives were lost in the immediate conflict. With their daughter less than two months old, under the cover of darkness, they crossed the border into Austria where they sought refuge. They found it in an Austrian refugee camp where they waited until Louisa was old enough to fly and with her, aged five months, they departed for Melbourne, Australia. In Australia, they settled in refugee camps before finally relocating to Sydney, where the story eventually catches up with me. On the other side, my father's grandmother was Scottish and his grandfather was Spanish. They came here on boats. So that's where I pip Laurie just. Mm. (laughs) I think my grandparents had to, well, my grandfather had to flee over the border dodging bullets as well, but... Unfortunately, they had to catch a boat across. So. <laughs> Actually, Mum was in the Melbourne newspaper for being so young, flying into Australia. Yeah. Oh, really? Mm. Has, ah. has a little cut out of the article. We all very almost didn't end up in Australia. I think we were intended to go to somewhere like Argentina, except my grandfather had a prematurely white beard and it was a big bushy beard. So they thought he was much older than he really was. And for some reason they said, oh, you're old. 
better go to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what the the logic was there, but yes, that's how how we ended up here instead of somewhere else. There you else. go, it worked so. out. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not saying that I really identified directly with any of her experiences, but I do feel like I can understand them and that they're authentic and they're only played up in the way that they realistically would be by a 17-year-old. So onto my enjoyment of this book. Something inside me made me want to not like it. I don't know what that was. Maybe it was me wondering whether as a country we've moved on a little bit from what could be perceived as stereotypes in this book. Maybe it was the fact that I read it in high school, but that makes not a lot of sense because I did really enjoy it back then. So I'm not sure what that was, but as I read it, I found I was really enjoying it and perhaps more so than I was in my first read through all those years ago. I knew it was coming, which I thought maybe would have impacted on that, but it didn't in a negative way because I really felt that the one extremely tragic event in the book was dealt with really, really well. It's um, it's testament to the author, Melina Marchetta, given this is her first published works, just how authentic and believable it was. And it's pretty remarkable that it was her first book. When you when you read it, it's so well written. You don't have to think about the writing, but you, you realise as you're going that it's it's so effective. It's the perfect length for me as well. It's not too brief that it's over before you, you know it, but it's not too long, so it leaves you wanting more. And the real strength of this book is the characters. And there's so many that are enjoyable in their own ways, but of course, Ali Brandy is the centrepiece of the book. And it's her relationship with her mother initially, her, her grandmother, and then her father that I found believable and enjoyable. I think maybe the way she came around to her father was perhaps a little accelerated. Maybe that's best served in a book like this to keep it moving along. So I can forgive that very easily. It was really a very enjoyable read for me. There was only a very few minor issues I had with it. One of those is the name change. At one point, her father comes to her suggesting that she change her name to his surname, Andretti, and also that he adopts her. She doesn't go along with the adoption idea, but is happy to take his name, which at that point, she had also found something out about her grandmother and that the name to her had lost its meaning, but it hadn't to her mother. So I don't know why that was included in the book. I didn't think it was necessary. Do any of you guys have thoughts on that? I completely agree. I didn't really have a problem with it because she just had found out the history of her grandparents. And if you feel that name is tainted in some way and you want to make a grand gesture to this father figure that you didn't know but now I've gotten to know really well and appreciate his presence, then... Yes, but not not with her mother not knowing Mm. the situation. You don't... You just wouldn't do it. You've yeah. decided to keep this secret between yourself and your nonna. You're not going to put that in any kind of jeopardy. Mm. Yeah. But her mother didn't like her father either. They had a very poor relationship. So Yeah, that is true. Mm. As well. I don't know why she feels so attached to that name either, mm. if you know what I mean. Like I, I wouldn't fault my daughter for wanting to get away from that name if it's got a bad history, which you've personally experienced. But life. it attaches her the daughter to the mother as well because the mother's mm. not going to change her name or not in the book itself. So it really it's an attachment to her mother and I think it's kind of a little bit rude of the father to suggest that she do that maybe yeah. she had maybe he'd yeah. run it by the mother first i don't know it doesn't cover it off in detail and like i said it was only a very minor bugbear so i shouldn't go into it too much but yeah yeah it's a fair point laurie what did you think 
Well, you touched on my first point a little bit, Keith. I think there's this unfortunate situation that sometimes occurs in high schools. You're given a book to study, and because it's a book you have to study, there's like an unreasonable reluctance to appreciate it. And when this does occur, it's potentially made worse by the fact that you then have to write an essay or participate in discussions about themes and have potentially bored classmates read passages out loud to the class in sort of various droning voices. It's possible then that while a deeper understanding of the text as a literary work is gleaned, that the true enjoyment might be missed. Now, it's been 15 years or so, so I don't recall my feelings about my first reading of the book too strongly, but I can say this time I really, really loved the book. Some Aussie works can, I don't know, be horrid cliches with hyperbolic Australian characterizations, and this just wasn't. It felt to me to be a sublime and authentic, but never stodgy snapshot of like a teenage girl's existence, a girl with expectations and culture and family secrets weighing upon her shoulders. It was really good. I think Marchetta pretty finely crafted Josephine, giving her attitude, intelligence and growth in all the right measures. I wondered at one point if maybe Josie might slide towards rebellion and failure, but the right mix of circumstance, insight, guidance and maturity, they all moved her towards not necessarily a utopian ending because of the death of her good friend, but a fairly triumphant and hopeful one. I closed the pages on this book feeling like I'd personally witnessed a young woman face some of the toughest challenges that any person might face, like the meeting of a parent you've never known, the revelation of dark family secrets, the suicide of a friend, a breakup, and all that stuff, and seen her rise, mature, and yet still make me laugh along the way. There were a few funny period-related quirks that made me raise my eyebrow once or twice. <laughs> and by period, I mean time setting, <laughs> not the other thing. <laughs> like, we've become so used to mobile phones that the absence of them is pretty noticeable, for example. But I think the book still survives a decade or so of ageing. I was going to say, um, when did you read this? You said 15 years before. That's the 2000s, Laurie. Oh, jeez. Yeah, really? you, I think you're looking more like 20, 20? to... Yep, plus. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> 25, I think it was published. Yeah. So there's a few quirks in there. There's something in there that sort of stuck out once or twice. But, you know, I think it's a good snapshot of that period and it still works well. It's not made illegible by the passing of time, that's for sure. So, yes, I really liked it. Didn't realise this was Melina's first book, but I'm all the more astounded by the quality of the writing then. It was just spot on. It was funny. It was moving. I must sound like the biggest sap ever, but there were times when tears were welling and I just, I really enjoyed it. And I don't know if I would have enjoyed it as much in high school because of the way you have to sort of beat books to death to get every last ounce of meaning out of them. But I certainly appreciated it on this go round. What about you, Bree? <laughs> no surprises. Me too. I loved it. Love, love, loved it. Loved it back then, loved it now. I think for me it's... You said it beautifully. I mean, it's an Alabrandi, Josephine, Josie, Josie. She's a really authentic character. She's incredibly nuanced. And also, so are her friends. They're all individuals in their own way, but they're all characters that, even though they don't appear regularly through the book, you feel like you know them from mm. the shy, quiet, sweet girl, Anna, to the 
you know, the very fiery, slightly uh, loose Sarah to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, they, you know, and as a, no, but as a group of friends, you know, they cut class and they challenge each other to do things. They go on dares. They, they just seem like a really good group of friends that you'll find qualities like that in if you look around you in a girls' school in your group of friends, you'll find qualities like that in everyone. Yeah, I like the description of how they sort of formed their friendship group as well. It wasn't really necessarily by choice. It was kind of they were a little bit the outcasts and formed an alliance based on that. Hmm. And yet you learn over time that they've actually become – you wouldn't say the rebel crew, but the, the but certainly leaders amongst their group. Everybody sort of wants to be a little bit like them, so that's interesting mm. as well. Again, I really liked that there are some genuinely funny bits in this, like when Josie, whenever she stays over at her nonna's house, she has to sleep in the same bed as her nonna, and she says something. You know, on page 88, God, God, I have to sleep in the same bed as her and she doesn't shave her legs and it just made me giggle thinking of. <laughs> the time you had to sleep with your mum and she hadn't shaved her legs? <laughs> you know my mum. Shh. Oh. <laughs> take it back. <laughs> He's not a good Italian boy, this Lottie. <laughs> <laughs> but what I really loved is that it wasn't just this neat little story that was all wrapped up and tied with a big fluffy bow at the end. It's mm. it's there is some resolution and there's some recognition of some of those bigger themes in the book, like family and identity and the strong women in her life and dealing with the challenges and the stresses of maturing through a really highly charged year mm. and suicide and all of those sorts of things and how you cope with that as a young person and how that affects you. And I think that's really nice, but it is just a chapter in her story and I really liked that that's how it ended. It doesn't just say, and they lived happily ever after and Josie's mum and dad got back together and Josie got into law and whatever else she wanted to do, she achieved all her dreams. It, it ends with her realising that this is just a chapter in her in her story and that there is bigger and better yet to come and I love that theme for coming-of-age story. There was one, oh, a few pages that annoyed me, as there always is with these things, and I feel that there was a bit of a straying of topics at one point. So where Josie and her friend have been working at McDonald's and then they're accosted by a group of basically losers who threaten a bit of sexual violence against them and things. And I just, that thread uh, was closed off very quickly. It didn't really lead anywhere and it didn't really have a point I just felt like it was a chapter that was probably not required don't know how you guys felt about that no I didn't think about it until now but you're right there wasn't any ongoing repercussions of that like you you would have thought that that would be something that warranted further mention even if they were just sort of thinking about it maybe it was just their way of introducing Jacob as this sort of hero character and having the transition of Josephine's opinion of him accelerated I don't know but yeah I agree mm. like like Laurie I didn't think about it at the time but now that you say it Brie I think yeah you're, you're right it was wasn't really necessary in the rest of the book I, I'm not to say that it doesn't have value I just think that if it had been done more elegantly with a, a thread because she knew the guy who was doing it so if that thread had been planted earlier in the book or something and it had been followed through it'd be slightly different but uh, yeah yeah it popped up it happened and then disappeared entirely yeah you didn't hear anything mm. else 
Her cousin Roberto was mentioned a few times but without any sort of substantial role other than like a brother type figure but it wasn't really developed there either I don't think. It kind of made out like he was this important character in the book and yet when it mentions him at the end as one of the close friends or whatever it was she was listing off people that she had important relationships with and he was amongst them and it felt Mm. like he was kind of just a bit bit character in it just filling out or fleshing out that Italian family. Hmm. Mm. Agreed. Like he had been a whole storyline that had Yeah, it seemed like that might have been the case. Mate, yeah, like he'd been edited out in a chapter or two. Mm. 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 The other thing I quite liked is that it was very prophetic in some ways. And I've got a passage there about on page 94 where Nonna has been telling her about some stories and of what it was like to be Italian in Australia in the 40s. And she says... Nonna went on telling me more and as I lay back I thought it was ironic that the same ignorance that was around back then is still here now, an ignorance that will live in this country for many years to come, I think. Sadly. <laughs> Do you think it's accurate though, that it has it has stayed to that extent or you think, I don't know, I get the feeling that it might have commenced the dwindling because we do have a pretty mature multicultural society in that it's been many generations now that there's been multicultural elements to it. Hmm. Yeah, I feel that the racism that we see in our country changes over time. So in this point, it might have been the Italians and at one stage it might have been the Greeks or maybe they were both classed as quote-unquote wogs together, whereas later on it switches to whoever we might be seeing more maybe immigrants of at the time or maybe if there's been a perceived problem with a certain group in society that the racism changes over time and it's really disturbing. If, If I was to think about high school, say, jokes when I was really young, maybe it was about Italians and Greeks and then later on it was about Lebanese and I think now probably... If you were in high school, you might, and it's hard because we're not in high school, but I would say that maybe the most either racism or just prejudice in general might be against a religious group rather than an Mm. ethnic group. However, having said that, the ordinary Australian, I think, probably is pretty tolerant. We just voted in a... Muslim gold Logie winner. I mean, that is like the height (laughs) of, that's like the equivalent for any American listers of what, the Golden Globe. And the ultimate of the Golden Globes was just awarded in a popularity contest to an incredibly intelligent man and a very well-deserving winner. Mm. The other thing is the ordinary Australian these days might have these multicultural ties themselves. Mm. Well, that's right. Yeah, we are a multicultural nation and Nobody can look too far back without them actually being an immigrant unless they're a courier or Indigenous Indigenous Australian Australian or whatever you prefer to be identified by, then, yeah, it's only a couple of generations back and you too are the immigrant. I have to step in as well, Laurie. I think the most prevalent racial joke whilst I was in high school was Irish. Come on, surely you had those Irish jokes. Really? Oh, I don't know. No, actually, now that you mention it, you're right. I, I had sort of forgotten about that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's unfortunate, but I, I think that that might happen, that the racial group that is currently the target of racism might change over time, which is kind of ridiculous. Mm. But I also think that they get this small minority that gets a heck of a lot of airplay. And whether that's right. media or whether that is also just the media going, look at how ridiculous these people are, mm. I don't know. 
It's, it's a funny balance as well because you have this idea and it comes through strongly in the book as well that if you're part of that group yourself, you can poke fun at it. But if anyone outside it does, it's it's sacred ground. They can't do that. And I know that holds true, but it's a questionable ideology, I think. You know, it's funny. I was just reminded, my father, he was born in Italy and came across on the boat when he was one. So he grew up in Australia and I think he identified very strongly as being an Aussie to the point where he tells me this story every so often how when he was young, his dad used to make prosciutto and he would offer it to my dad and my dad's like, I don't want to eat any of that wog rubbish. (laughs) Being born in Italy, that's kind of funny in itself. But then later on, many years after my grandfather had passed away, dad saw that prosciutto that he'd been offered for free from his dad all his life (laughs) was something like $40 a kilo or something ridiculous at Woolworths. So he went and bought some to see why it was so expensive and absolutely loved it and had been kicking himself ever since. So it's funny where uh, that racism starts. It's a good point as well that food is one thing that really unites people and cultures and it comes through strongly in this book as well as in my own life. Hungarian food is something that as a family we love to enjoy together and just last week we went to the local Hungarian club to have some food there and it's a nice way to identify with history and it's just bloody good food in most cases as the prosciutto was no doubt and it's funny that people might turn their nose up to it, the idea of this foreign food, but in our culture now, multicultural food is so prevalent and so loved by all. It's really broken through any barriers of racism. Hmm. Oh, I couldn't get through a month without a good serving of Indian, Chinese, Japanese. <laughs> I love it. I don't know much about Hungarian food, though, Keith. Can you give me a quick rundown of what that... I, I'm, I'm vaguely thinking goulash, but I thought that was Russian or something. Those dumplings, what are they called? Yep, so they're called knockedly those. Mm. They're delicious with like a, a perkert or or a goulash, which is more sort of a soupy version of a, of a perkert. So perkert is one of our favourites, either chicken or, or beef. Also just your chicken schnitzel is, is a big family favourite. Christmas time, that, that comes out Ooh. big time. You've got the this cucumber and vinegar dish, which is a nice accompaniment to that. Is that a salad or is it like a sauerkraut type sort of stewed or something? It's not stewed. It's hand squeezed normally, but it's um, it's yeah, kind of a salad, yeah, but you generally eat it with something. Oh, okay. Mm, right. Yum. Mm, that sounds good. Next time I'm visiting, Keith, you'll have to take me. No worries. <laughs> Bree, did you have any more to add? No, that's all. I loved it. Did anybody get time to watch the movie? Yeah, but before we do, one thing that we always do, well, one thing I always do with the books is I, while I'm reading, I highlight some quotes that I Mm -hmm. liked and then we never actually get, (laughs) well, I never get time to actually mention any of them. And I think there's a few real gems in there. One of them was her father, like most Italian fathers, thinks she's the Virgin Mary and like most Italian fathers, is dead set wrong. (laughs) (laughs) All right. If we're going to play this game, I'm going to put this one up. Because it might kind of made me go, oh, no dramatics like in the romance novels, but different. So they're kissing. Intimate mm. because part of him was inside part of me. Tasting someone's breath is so spiritual. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back. This is uh, the point I was making before. It's regarding the ability to use terminology when you're inside the group versus out. I'm an Italian. I'm of European descent. When an Italian or another person of European descent calls me a wog, it's done in good, warm humour. 
When the word wog comes out of the mouth of an Australian, it's not done in good humour unless they're a good friend. It makes me feel pathetic and it makes me remember that I live in a small-minded world and that makes me so furious. Hmm. That's, mm, yeah. that's really good. What page is that one? It's at location 1388, but it doesn't give me a page. <laughs> There's one I liked. This was one of the touching moments of the book. So, The uh, heavy petting or the different touching? <laughs> <laughs> no, Keith. <laughs> She's met her father at this stage and they had a bit of a blow up, but no real connection yet. And she gets in trouble because she whacks her one of her school chums in the face with a book because she's being a bit racist and called her a bastard and this girl is like a model the model's father is threatening to sue her pants off so in a moment of desperation she calls this father that she's never really talked to very much and he comes to her rescue and as they're leaving the principal's office she says so how was court today i asked at the top of my voice Michael and Dretti looked around, seeming uncomfortable with the attention, and gave me a great spiel about his day in court. I heard the whispers of excitement, knowing how impressive he sounded. I walked past my classmates with Michael and Dretti beside me, and for a few minutes I knew how it felt to be walking alongside one's father. It was a great feeling. And that one I was just like, oh, that's lovely. <laughs> yeah, I liked that as yeah, well. Yeah, it was nice, yeah. Here's another one for the dad, and this is just a little bit of dad humour coming through. It's a lot later in the book when he's made the decision to move permanently from Adelaide to Sydney. You sounded, he said dryly, it was a hard decision, but I had to get my priorities right. I ran away from commitment 18 years ago. I should never have done what I did to your mother. I can't run away again because I'm older and I run slower. <laughs> I want to have my time yeah. with you now. Yeah, there's some dad humor there. So he didn't know he was a father, but he yeah has the humor to match. It's good because she does manage to execute those different characters so well. You do hear the dad voice, and you do hear the mum's voice, and you do hear a teenage girl's voice so accurately. Mm. I think there is one quote that I was a bit annoyed with. When I think of it now, wagging innocent Martha's school uniform was pretty stupid, but I was so caught up with seeing him that I didn't care. He was waiting for me by the key, and I felt as if I was going to be sick when I saw him. I mean, he's the first guy who's ever passed the test, because usually when I like a guy, I get instantly turned off when he likes me back. Come on! <laughs> How's a guy supposed to win in that scenario? <laughs> You're not. There was a pretty funny one, uh, page 136. Mama, this is the 90s. In the 21st century, they'll be blowing condoms up on Romper Room and playing Punch, Punch, Punch the Ball with them. Face it, <laughs> the age of innocence is gone. <laughs> this is, this is a, a different one. According to Amazon, I'm a resident of Hawaii, so the Kindle book I was reading was the US version and it had been tweaked in some strange ways to make it relatable, I guess, for US readers. The temperature had been changed from Celsius to Fahrenheit. And the other really strange one, there was a couple of times where they referenced Australian shops, or I believe Australian shops, and in the US book, they turned into Gap and Abercrombie, which I was like, it's just <laughs> rude because, you know, if I'm reading a book about Australia, I want it to have authentic Australian stores in it, or in my case, if I'm reading, say, a, a British book, I want it to have British stores. I want to learn about the country through reading books about it. Yeah, and the number of times that you read about Walmart, there's no Walmart in Australia, but we all know what it is. <laughs> yeah. You, you can always yeah. infer it. That's right, yeah. That was just mm. strange. Lovely. Let's talk the movie then. So I think, Keith, you and I both watched the movie recently and, Bree, you didn't get a chance? No, it's been 16 years for me. 
other than Matthew right. Newton, and I don't, I don't really remember much. <laughs> yeah, the movie starring P. Miranda was quite faithful to the book, and that's a great thing. As you've heard, we all really loved the book, and I think it's quite a good homage paid to the book. It's not as strong, but it does the job. And unfortunately, in my rewatch, I've only got about two-thirds of the way through, but I will finish watching it and I will do so with hopeful delight. It's really great seeing your city in a movie. I saw this first in the cinemas, so even more so then, but you know, being from Sydney, seeing all the familiar landmarks, the Opera House, the Harbour Bridge, George Street, the Anzac Bridge, which strangely featured in a really over-the-top way. Long and drawn-out <laughs> yes. motorbike scene. Is it... Yes. Is it filmed in Glebe, which is where she lives? I think parts of it might be. It's kind of a nondescript inner city style locations. I don't know where they actually were, but it's supposed to be there still. There was some parts of the movie that weren't so great though. One of them was the U2 with or without you funeral montage, which was just... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's totally 90s. That's awesome. Yeah, it might have put it in a place in... And it was mentioned in the novel that she listened to you 2 as like a modern day, she listened to Bono as a modern day poet. Yeah, I think yeah. it's best left there without actually playing the music. I don't know, it was just really, really, really cliched in there. I think it's always best to just not play you 2 Yeah, <laughs> And they move the order of things around, which happens so often in movies when there are adaptations of books. Uh, you know, the mass book incident came after the suicide, as an example. There was these cheeky little musical overtures that were in there. I don't know whether I liked them or didn't like them. Sometimes they felt in the right place, and other times they sort of made it feel a bit like a TV show. But it was, mm. a, it was a pretty good job, and I enjoyed it. Well, I've enjoyed it so far. One interesting point, as I'm watching, my wife was watching with me, and she's like, oh, that's right. That girl went to school with me, the, the character that played Sarah, was actually in her class at school or in her year at school. And Lisa revealed to me as well that while she was there, Melina Machetta actually was a teacher at her school for a period. So that's quite crazy. Yeah. What did you think of the movie, Laurie? I thought, yes, it was pretty faithful to the book. The acting was pretty good. The only bit that really stuck in my craw, there's always going to be something. The mother was told about the history. Was she? No. Her grandmother spilled the beans. Well, Josie worked out that her grandmother had cheated on her grandfather and and that was how her mother came about. I think you should quantify that. The grandfather in the book is very cold in general to... Yes, I think he he was an abysmal husband. And, in fact, he was unable to have children and he knew that and tricked, I think, both... Josephine's grandmother and her parents and didn't tell them before he married. So Josephine's grandmother always thought she was going to have children and then thought perhaps maybe it was her fault that she couldn't after they got married. But it turns out that Josie's grandfather knew all along that he could never have children. Anyway, it was just one of the many sort of sins that this grandfather committed against the family, yeah. Because he then had the same attitude to um, Christina. Mm, Josie's mum, yeah. Right, so in the book, Josie's mum, Christina, never finds out that she is in fact the love child of an affair. Whereas in the movie, she walks in and hears Josie say, you've got to tell mum, and it's like, you've got to tell mum what? Mm. And then two minutes later, Josie's sitting outside on the front step and the mother walks out and sits down and says, I think I always knew anyway. And it was like, it was just sort of brushed over. Mm. So, And the other thing is that in the book, Jacob and 
Josie don't end up together. They break up. Don't tell me they have a happy ending in a nice big fluffy bow. That's the best thing about the book. The end of the movie is, oh, sorry, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> Block your ears if you like. The end of the movie is him showing up at the family tomato squishing event and hanging out with the family and they all start dancing at the end of some <laughs> crappy Mario Lanza or something. So. Now that you've spoiled that, does Marcus Sanford turn up? Is he is he gone and buried? Or is he, I can't. No, he doesn't show up, no. I, I don't know if he's even still alive. Marcus being the attractive Australian man that won the heart of Josie's grandmother mm. out in the bush. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for all their Italian carry on, the mother is only half Italian, about the same as Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm only a quarter Italian. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you round it up, maybe. Yeah, yeah. She's only half European, the same as Laurie. Yeah, right. Anything else about the movie, Keith? I liked that it was a Porto rather than McDonald's where <laughs> they were. <laughs> thing I noticed is that the city itself, I didn't think the city had changed that much, but boy, has it changed. Even just when they went down to the beach, which I assume was Bondi or Coogee. It was was Bondi, yeah. Was it? Yeah. It it looked completely different. The buildings look old and very, very 80s or 90s, whereas I'm sure if you go there now, the houses look a a little bit more la-di-da. Well, the film itself is also 16 years old, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, some parts, like Laurie's saying there, had, have changed quite a bit, but there was a lot in there that, as well that was exactly the same to my eye. Right. You know, trying to spot time zone in the background of George Street. <laughs> <laughs> Look for some stabbings happening there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Keith, time for scoring? Sure thing. So what better way to score this very Italian book with some very Italian food? Ah. So one point... Was it stone-cold pre-made garlic bread? Oh, uh, you mean shop-bought? Yeah, as in, you know, from the freezer at Woolies. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then heated up and then allowed to cool to, you know, room temperature. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yep. yes. So that a poor and unappealing imitation of the real thing. Uh-huh. Was it two, a chain restaurant's Hawaiian pizza? Inauthentic yet strangely consumable. <laughs> was it three? Pizza from the local pizza joint, a guilty pleasure. Or was it four? A delicious home cooked spaghetti bolognese, familiar and tasty, enjoyable no matter how many times you have it. <laughs> or was it five? Ristorante prepared fettuccine boscaola. Messy, fun, delicious. Ultimately rich, authentic, and fulfilling. Ooh, Laurie. I'm feeling hungry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, it was definitely uh, Fettuccine Boschiella. It was bellissimo. It was fantastic. Five stars all around. Loved it. Five stars from me. It was messy. It was authentic. It was fun. It was awesome. Absolutely loved it. Keith? Yep. Fettuccine Boscaola all the way for me as well. It was a great read and thanks, Brie, for bringing it back into our lives. You're welcome. What a good episode. (laughs) (laughs) Next episode, it's my pick. Ugh, are we back to Laurie's choice again? (laughs) Animals, vegetables, minerals. There's a little book that some of you might have heard of called The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. Mm. I honestly don't know too much about it, 
but it seems very popular. And given the title, I'm going to go ahead and assume that it's a badass sci-fi with lots of pew, pew, pew. <laughs> Your fingers are well crossed on that one. <laughs> yeah. Until then, if you're Pia Miranda, I'm part Italian and I love you. <laughs> no, no, wait, that's not what I intended to say. Uh, I'll try again. All right. <clears throat> Until then, if you're a teenage girl struggling with everyday racism from bloody ignorant Australians and you're looking to the heavens in dismay, then be careful. Because when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, <laughs> that's amore. No. No. I hated that ending. <laughs> He's not having any of it. Aww. <laughs> I loved it. Pretty bloody racist Australians. Um.